You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. again to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, and uh, appreciate you taking some time and, and listening in. Hopefully, this will be uh, an interesting talk for you. Uh, as, as much as we've, as we've tried to dodge uh, uh, being COVID 24-7, we're not going to be able to do that this week. And so, uh, with the uh, preprint version of the uh, reco- one part of the recovery study that looked at de- dexamethasone use in COVID patients, we felt like it was a really good idea to, to go over that. Um, um, and, and obviously that's generated a lot of interest. We at my hospital have already pretty much switched all hospitalized patients on, on oxygen to receiving dexamethasone. It's, it's uh, already been updated as far as changes in the, the national uh, health system of the United Kingdom, as well as the uh, CDC and NIH recommendations here in the United States. So, so everyone pretty much embraced this pretty quickly. And, 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 it's, and it, it seems reasonable why. I mean, again, you know, even without the full peer-reviewed paper published, uh, uh, you know, uh, dexamethasone at that dose is certainly not a gigantic dose of steroids. I think most physicians are pretty comfortable with with using uh, steroids in general and, and at that dose. So it, it doesn't surprise me that it was fairly quickly uh, adopted. Uh, but but it is important to note that we don't have the full peer-reviewed paper in front of us. We have a preprint. Uh, we we don't know what they looked at as far as, as safety and things along those lines. So so I think it's always important to keep in mind that that the the pace of of information with with uh, with uh, COVID is so rapid that we're, we're, we're pay, taking stuff that's practically off the news and then implementing it in our patients. Um, something that I suspect would have been unthinkable uh, six months ago is, is something we pretty, we pretty easily do now. So. Uh, anyway, so we'll move on to that in a second. Uh, again, thank you t- for taking the time to listen. Um, uh, uh, please like uh, the podcast um, and comment on the podcast wherever you get your podcast and spread the word so we can get more people involved and, and they can get their CE, uh, which is always a good thing if they happen to be pharmacists. So so the recovery study, I'm sure almost everybody hearing my voice is, is at least heard of. Um, it is a gigantic, pragmatic randomized control trial done in the United Kingdom, uh, a fairly uh, interesting way to, to, to do a rapid uh, a controlled study where they looked at a, a large portion of patients in the United Kingdom uh, with uh, COVID and perform multiple interventions on on different cohorts of them and then pulled those cohorts out and then reviewed them and then and then tried to get the data published as quickly as possible so this is is part of this gigantic kind of umbrella pragmatic study of of the recovery called recovery program where they look specifically at steroids and it's important to remember that that before this paper was published even though uh the use of steroids kind of varied widely in localities um the uh um uh, early data from Chinese sources was that steroids actually were harmful. They actually did not help. And uh, the guidelines from the Society of Critical Care Medicine also mentioned that and actually had a, had a, a, a recommendation against routine use of steroids in, in hospitalized or critically ill patients with, with COVID. So we, like in my hospital, we weren't using a lot of, of steroids in patients unless they happen to have a concomitant other disease where they needed steroids, like for example, they had COPD or thinking something along those lines. So all, although, you know, overall use of steroids was pretty variable, I think in the United States, most places were not using 
a ton of, of, of corticosteroids in their COVID patients based on this early data from China and based on the, the, the SCCM guidelines. So this really kind of made us do an about face. Uh, the study is, a, again, a gigantic uh, or, or a pragmatic randomized study done. It was It's being done and, and was done in 176 hospital organizations in the United Kingdom. And basically, you were eligible in a pretty broad uh, st state, they included basically anybody who had suspected or confirmed COVID, and they their only contraindication, at least that we know to this date, because again, we don't have the full data available to us, is that uh, the contraindication was basically if the if the investigator said, I don't think this is going to be a good patient to be on, on dexamethasone, they weren't included. And if they didn't have informed consent, they weren't included. But that was really about it. Uh, they even um, uh, allowed uh, pregnant and breastfeeding women to, to, to be in the study as well. So that's something, again, that you just wouldn't see, I think, under normal circumstances. So um, it is a randomized study. It's an open-label study. And, and the reason it's called Primatic, of course, is because what they're not really doing placebo here because it, it would be very difficult and very time-consuming to, to, to set a placebo-controlled trial. So in these cases, they are doing randomization. And in this case, they randomize patients uh, uh, based on their demographics, based on their level of respiratory support, based on their major comorbidities uh, to various and sundry treatments. And one of these treatments was standard of care and nothing, and standard of care plus dexamethasone, six milligrams once daily, either oral or intravenously for up to 10 days or until hospital discharge if it was sooner than 10 days. Um, and that, that last part's kind of interesting that it does not have to be intravenous because, uh, again, and, uh, as you might imagine, uh, dexamethasone has already become on back order nationwide because now everyone wants to, wants to have plenty of it for, for, for their COVID patients. And I was speaking to my oncology pharmacist here at Methodist and she, her concern, and I think it's a good one, is that they routinely use dexamethasone for, uh, uh chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And so, uh, you know, certainly if, if, if a patient can swallow their there was no magic, so far as we're able to tell from the from the paper that we have in front of us, of intravenous versus oral dexamethasone. And I think that's something that pharmacists can certainly advocate for, is if the patient can swallow, just giving them oral dexamethasone. So in this case, uh, they, they were they were randomized in a two-to-one ratio um, of, of standard of care uh, or standard of care plus dexamethasone. And then basically, they uh, followed the patients till the end of their hospitalization, if they were either discharged or passed away or where they basically ended up. And there will undoubtedly be dozens of papers that spin off from the re recovery program. We'll probably be talking about recovery studies for years to come, even after the COVID crisis has, has, has long passed, I think. Um, but, but this, I, I think everyone would agree their outcome measures were, were pretty solid because their primary outcome is all-cause mortality within 28 days of randomization. You really can't get a more uh, a powerful uh, outcome than that. And so, um, uh, they, they really wanted to go for the gold here. And so they weren't looking for, you know, they didn't do a composite uh, outcome of, well, death and, gee, they weren't coughing as much and they weren't using as much oxygen. You know, th this really was a pretty hard outcome. And I think they're to be commended for that. There were, of course, numerous secondary outcomes, including time to discharge from the hospital um, um, and then patients who are receiving or not receiving mechanical ventilation. Uh, if they did, weren't receiving mechanical ventilation, what was uh, the odds of them developing or 
are needing invasive mechanical uh, uh, ventilation, things along those lines. Um, they, of course, looked at, at and sliced and diced the data uh, in, in a variety of number, uh, number of ways, and, and we'll talk about that in the statistical analysis in just a second. Um, they did look at some other clinical outcomes that haven't been really reported out at this point, but things like the receipt of, of hemodialysis or hemofiltration or major cardiac arrhythmias, uh, things along those lines. And again, I, you know, this is a preliminary report. We'll get the full paper, I'm sure, at some point in a peer-reviewed journal, and that'll help us kind of figure out what's going on. So the good news was that in this study, um, for the first time, we found uh, that the primary outcome of 28-day mortality uh, um, uh, was lower. And, and so um, that, 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 did, that, that made people, a lot of people happy, including myself. Um, it's important that when we talk about that, then we talk a little bit about the statistics. And so what they did with the, 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 the mortality statistic is they used, as you might imagine, the Cox regression test uh, to estimate the mortality ratio. And, and you know, those of you who read a lot of studies know that's pretty much the standard that we use when we're calculating the Kaplan-Meier curve or the survival curves that are done all over the place in, in studies and stuff like that. Um, they uh, did have about 5% of patients who, who had not had, had basically the end of their story hadn't been told by the time of the data cut, which was June 10th to 2020. And so those patients were either censored or if they'd been discharged alive, um, they were right censored at day 29. So in other words, basically, if they lost the follow up at day 28 and they didn't they couldn't find out what happened, they just assumed that they did survive past that 28 days. That has been commented on by others as a possible weakness of the study that that, you know, maybe to, to make it a little tougher, they should have assumed they didn't survive. But but I, you know, I think that's certainly not, a not unreasonable plan uh, to, to look at the statistics associated with this. So uh, they weren't able to calculate the precise data of invasive mechanical ventilation. So they used a, a regression model to kind of estimate the risk ratio for that particular outcome. They did stratify by uh, age, by sex, by level of respiratory support, by days of symptom onset, um, and what the predicted 28-day mortality risk. So they had several subgroup analysis that, that, that they took a look at, basically. Interestingly, um, they found that the mean age was about a year higher in those who got dexamethasone versus those who are allocated to usual care. That, that has also been commented on in some critiques of this paper, uh, but I would argue that that would actually make things harder for dexamethasone to show a benefit since we know age is associated to worse outcomes. So. So um, they actually stopped the study uh, uh, when, when they had had uh, exceeded 2,000 patients, uh, basically because they basically found found a benefit and felt it would be unethical to continue. So in this study, what they basically did was was a, a total of 11,000 patients. Uh, so to this date, have been ran, randomized in, in the whole recovery uh, uh, study uh, program. But if you just look at the dexamethasone group, uh, uh, 2,100 patients were randomized to dexamethasone and 40. 300 patients were randomized to usual care. So that's that segment of the re of the recovery st uh, study that was looked at. The mean age in this cohort was 66 years. 36% of the, this cohort was female. About a quarter of the patients had diabetes. About a quarter had heart fail, uh, heart disease. And about a quarter had, had lung disease as well. Overall, almost 60% of patients who uh, were in this cohort had one major comorbidity that we suspect is associated with, with, uh, with uh, worse outcomes in COVID. At randomization, about 16% of patients were receiving invasive mechanical ventilation, uh, and 60% were receiving uh, some sort of oxygen uh, support. So I would call these patients kind of, you know, standard hospital level uh, sick with, with COVID, but not critically ill with, with, with COVID. Uh, 
Um, and so as far as the primary outcome is concerned, as I said, they did find a benefit um, the, uh, 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 of, of being on dexamethasone. So significantly fewer patients in the, in the dexamethasone uh, uh, were, were, had passed away at 28 days compared to the usual care group. And so 21.6% of patients in the dexamethasone group had, had passed away compared to 24.6% of patients in the usual care group. And so that ends up being about a, a relative risk reduction of about 30%. Uh, and it was statistically significant. Uh, as always, the relative risk makes things sound a lot better than you know than maybe you really think, because you think, wow, a third less people died, and that, that is definitely a good thing. But the you know the total numbers were again were kind of 21, 24% of patients in usual care passed away versus 21% of patients in dexamethasone. You know, make no mistake, this is this is definitely good news, and it's it's definitely a a a a, a game changer, no pun intended, for the uh, for for the treatment of of, of COVID. But uh, remember that relative risk almost always sounds way better than absolute risk reduction, and, and that's certainly the case in, in, in here as well. Um, they also found in the, that there was a, uh, uh, particularly in mechanically ventilated patients, the benefit was the highest and actually decreased 28-day mortality in mechanically ventilated patients by 35% and uh, in, and by 20% in patients who were, who were on oxygen but did, but did not require invasive mechanical ventilation. Uh, when you actually knock through those uh, number needed to treat, so if you look at mechanically ventilated patients, it's a number needed to treat of only eight. And so that's that's very impressive that only, you don't have to treat eight patients to, to save one life. So so again, some, some pretty dramatic uh, outcomes here, which is which is pretty good, I think. Um, they also looked at, at, at a few other uh, uh, things. 28-day mortality was was in the usual care group was highest in those who were, were receiving mechanical ventilation. And I think that, that certainly stands to reason. It was only intermediate in those who received oxygen only, and then lowest in patients who were not on oxygen or at at randomization. Um, they also found that that uh, allocation of dexamethasone was associated with a shorter duration of hospitalization. You saved about a day of hospitalization and a greater probability of discharge, about about a uh, um, 11 percent uh, increased risk of being discharged. Again, in 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 the most of the patients, we saw the biggest benefit was was uh, uh, patients who were receiving mechanical ventilation. Interestingly, uh, when they looked at some of the the, the subs, uh, secondary subsidy outcomes, they found and and looked at kind of the 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 uh, subgroup analyses, they found that it seems that the benefit was again most uh, prevalent in patients who had had symptoms for at least seven days, and they found that the that the the uh, benefit disappeared in patients who are not receiving oxygen therapy. And in fact, in the end of the paper, they have a very nice uh, uh, um, forest plot where they they take a look at it and 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 again the benefit is is definitely better in patients who receive oxygen and invasive mechanical ventilation but actually the uh, the, the the plot number um, for for usual care you know is actually significantly in the in the column of usual care better only and and it didn't reach statistical significance that it was it was better with the usual care but definitely on the other side of of of, of unity and so again what what that kind of tells us is that it seems like dexamethasone later in the course of therapy when the, the so-called cytokine storm is really rubbing up in these patients really seems to be where the, where the biggest benefit. And I think it's probably a mistake to just pass out dexamethasone like candy to everybody who has, you know, some mild symptoms associated with dexamethasone or, excuse me, with COVID uh, that that I, there's probably not going to be a benefit in, in those patients, at least based on, on this trial that we have here. 
As far as background therapy, because uh, that's always another big question to ask in, in this study, uh, 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 very few patients were actually on uh, hydroxychloroquine in this group. So that's, I mean, it's good or bad, depending on, on how you want to take, take a look at this. Very few patients were receiving uh, interleukin-6 blockers like tocalizumab. And uh, very few patients were receiving lopinavir, ritonavir, um, so, so, uh, and remdesivir actually was not available um, until almost the end of this study period was done. So they actually uh, was, was so really these patients receiving weren't receiving a whole lot of other direct therapies for um, uh, for COVID, and this really was the the big therapy that that most of them were receiving for COVID, besides just you know usual supportive care of these patients. So. So, you know, there's nothing in the, in the study at all about safety. You know, um, I would assume that most of these patients had, had, had increased levels of glucose, uh, you know, and things along those lines, but they really don't, in this preliminary study, really, really don't discuss that at all. So we really do need to be, be watchful for the adverse effects associated with this. And while, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't you know, uh, Put the, set the, the results of this paper in stone. It is a, a, a landmark study in the in the rapidly changing landscape of, of, of treating COVID. So I think that 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 certainly we have gone to, to to doing this pretty pretty routinely in our patients. My guess is many of of the health systems that that are around here have done that as well. Um, of course, you know, at, at in our in our health system, a lot of our patients get convalescent plasma. A lot of our patients do get remdesivir. A lot of our patients uh, who are super sick in the ICU will get tocalizumab. And so the, the interaction between dexamethasone and any of those uh, therapies is just completely unknown. Um, uh, it, it is interesting to note that, that uh, tocalizumab studies that are ongoing right now have, have actually had steroids as an exclusion. My guess is they're going to have to alter their, their inclusion and exclusion criteria based on this. But if you take a look at, at clinicaltrials.gov, the, the big studies that were looking at tocalizumab and in, in cr critically patients with COVID actually uh, uh, largely had steroids as, as an exclusion criteria use of steroids. So my guess is they're going to have to change that. Interestingly, a paper uh, uh, did just come out a couple of days ago that took a look at, at methylprednisolone and tocalizumab and actually found the combination may have, have, a, have a, a synergistic benefit. Uh, it, was a, it was kind of a, a poorly done kind of case series slash retrospective cohort study. So uh, I'm not going to start using that combo on everybody, but it certainly, uh, I thought, it thinks gives us a little... Uh, 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 good information suggesting that at most the combination of, of, of corticosteroids and tocalizumab in super critically ill patients does not seem to be harmful. It, and it may be helpful, but it certainly doesn't seem to be harmful. So we actually, we had originally had that as part of our, our tocalizumab inclusion criteria here at our health system, and, and, we've, and we've actually backed that off. And so now you, you can still receive tocalizumab even if you've been on dexamethasone. So, so you, know, you know, more data to come. I suspect that, that in the next, you know, two months or so, we're going to see the full report of, of this part of the recovery study. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see other pieces of the recovery study as, as well as other pragmatic randomized studies that come out. And in, in a world where, you know, the, the treatment of, of COVID literally changes on a dime, literally changes on a, on a, uh, on a, uh, a, 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 a news report on CNN, what can often pretty dramatically change how we treat, uh, treat COVID, uh, we do have to be very uh, careful that 
that we we don't lose you know basically all the tenets of evidence-based medicine as, as, as we're kind of doing this so um, um, I think we, we it is reasonable to use this therapy based on the information we have but should another therapy come down the pike that maybe isn't uh, we don't have so much comfort with we don't uh, uh, you know the the, the cost of the, the costs or the the risks of the drug maybe maybe more significant than dexamethasone that's something I think we're all going to have to uh, have to kind of take in mind I mean if uh, uh, for example a paper uh, came out in JAMA internal medicine uh, just a couple of days ago it looked at colchicine in uh, in the treatment of, of, of early COVID so not not like super sick patients but kind of mildly ill outpatients with COVID and found you know kind of a, there was a signal toward kind of a mild improvement in symptoms but at the risk of a lot of diarrhea and and and, and side effects so again even though colchicine has been out for a long time and I think people are comfortable with it I think you do need to take a step back and in in studies like that and even if you know the you know news organizations were to tout colchicine as this big treatment for for uh, COVID you do have to take a step back and think about the benefits and the risks associated with them, in my opinion. So in this case, uh, the, the benefits seem absolutely solid with, with a significant reduction in mortality, something you just don't see with a lot of other uh, drugs, including, uh, ironically, remdesivir, which, which data to date has not shown an improvement in mortality, which is kind of interesting. Um, and, and we have a drug that, that we're very comfortable with. I think we understand the side effects very well, and at least as, the, as of the timing of this, of this broadcast is, is, is relatively inexpensive. So uh, I think dexamethasone is a, is, a, is a good new tool in our arsenal for, for patients on oxygen uh, support who have COVID pneumonia, and hopefully we'll get more data that helps us refine its use in just a second. So anyway, uh, we'll wrap up here in just a bit talking a little bit about uh, some of the information concerning uh, the surge of, of COVID in, in different states. But again, as always, like to thank uh, CE Impact for, for sponsoring this, this podcast. CE Impact has uh, a number of, of really, really good uh, uh, CE programs uh, that are really up to the minute things like this and Q Friday, uh, as well as as well as other more formal programs. Um, um, they really are a one-stop shop for those of you who are looking for, I think, very uh, impactful as well as, 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 as very well done CE. And so head on over to ceimpact.com and I'll let them talk a little bit more about this uh, right now, actually. Hey there, Game Changer podcast listeners. This is the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. We are so excited that the team at CE Impact has partnered with the Pharmacy Podcast Network to bring you a weekly subscription service which weeds through the clinical guidelines and evidence and gives it to you straight straight to your inbox every Friday, straight information in just 15 minutes. That's right, just 15 minutes every Friday, you'll get an opportunity to have CE on your phone, podcast form, evidence-based information distilled down in just 15 minutes. You'll have the information and the CE you need. Check this out, go to CE impact.com once again that's ce as in continuing education impact.com ceimpact.com we thank you for listening to the pharmacy podcast network 36 shows 45 participating farm d's 1050 plus episodes so much happening here get involved in the network there's opportunities for participation in a multitude of subjects and always remember you are the hub of healthcare. we love our pharmacists please stay safe during this time during this pandemic we love you i thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the pharmacy podcast nation 
So as we all know, um, there's been a, a surge of, of cases of, of COVID-19 in numerous states uh, across the country, um, and, and it is very concerning. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think that something we do have to keep in mind is that is that at least from where I've done my reading and kind of where I stand, that I, I think that there, there, we always kind of knew that reopening up uh, uh, the country and kind of and kind of backing off from 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 lockdown was probably going to result in an, in an increase in cases. I mean that just that just kind of stands to reason. So then the big question comes up is you know is this surge you know, going to lead to what we tried to avoid in March, which was an overwhelming of, of the healthcare systems. And you're getting various reports from various parts of the country. And I think the reason for that is that is that uh, um, uh, the, the, the surge numbers really do vary from, from state to state. And the patients themselves who are getting them are, are varying significantly from state to state. Uh, most of the big states to, to date that have had the big surge, the numbers of patients that are getting COVID, they're much younger. And since they're much younger, they're much less likely to require hospitalization and uh, um, uh, mechanical ventilation or, or being on the ICU or anything along those lines. So, you know, the surge is absolutely concerning. And I think we need to, you know, look look at the data. I think we need to, to you know, definitely wear masks. I mean, you know, again, you know, the studies are very clear that wearing masks decreases transmission of not just COVID, but a wide variety of droplet uh, respiratory diseases. Um, it does protect you as well as other people. And uh, you know, it's one, it's one of my hobby horses when people say, well, it doesn't really protect you. It absolutely protects you as well as other people. So uh, if you can wear a mask, I, I, I think you really, really should do so. Um, so I think we can do our part there. There is some good news in all of this bleakness, though. I mean, if you actually go to the COVID tracking project, you know, yes, they definitely have curves that are showing that, that there is an overall increase in number of cases between June 15th and, and July and July 1st. There's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, but uh, and there has been an, a bit of an upswing on on uh, hospitalizations. But the good news is the hospitalizations are still nowhere near where they were in May and uh, have actually, uh, in many states, including my state of Iowa, really leveled off or gone down, um, and new deaths have actually continued to, to, to go down. And so um, it, that's probably a combination of, again, younger people getting it, and so they're less likely to be you know, super ill and needing an hospitalization and, 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 and ICU services, and things like dexamethasone and, and learning better ways to treat these patients. I think we are doing a better job of treating these patients. And so you know, we should be concerned about the surge. We should do our own part to prevent uh, our local spreading of, of this or any other respiratory virus, uh, but do take some solace in the fact that, that, that while there's been, a, there's been an uptick in hospitalizations, it's still very, very low compared to our peak, and that, uh, and that um, uh, deaths from COVID have certainly dropped dramatically and continue on that downward trend. So I think that, that's good news. You can always go to covidtracking.com, and we can put that in the, in the show notes to kind of see where you're at in your state, which is really important. Because again, it's you know, this. This is such a, a local disease in a, in a big country like the United States. You really want to look at, at your own local data as well as, as national trends. So, well, on that kind of semi-sad but happy note, I want to thank you again for listening for, uh, to another episode of, of, of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. And uh, you know, again, you know, stick with it. Things will get better. Um, and, and I think as, as weeks go by, I'm, I'm hoping that, that that the news gets better and better as, as, as time goes on. So, anyway. Uh, next week we'll have another great topic hope i can uh, count on having you here and remember time flies I, we don't know where it's going but today is the most important day of all thanks very much